Let's hear the Word of God, and we're reading this morning from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, and we're picking up at verse 14. We've been looking, we started last week with the first part of the 8th chapter, picking it up at verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit that you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again, but rather the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirits that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we might also share in His glory. I consider that our present sufferings are, are, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this chapter of the book of Romans, we want to pray that Your Holy Spirit right now would be moving our hearts, that we might know that we are Your children, that we might know this is for us, and that You might encourage us in our Christian hope today for our Christian living. Amen. We started last week looking at chapter 8 of the book of Romans. Um, we're going to spend uh, another week on this in a fortnight's time. And I really would like to invite you to read the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. Get a couple of translations, just read it through. It's a complicated argument, and I'll, I'll be honest, uh, it, it's one I struggle with at times just to get how it all works, but it's one of those chapters where even if you don't follow the argument, there is a great sense of God speaking through the obvious things that are lying on the surface, words of huge encouragement about who we are in Jesus. The word that we took last week in particular was the word no condemnation because of what Christ has done for us. And that is so important in our, in our daily living because so many Christians are living feeling condemned. 
feeling guilty, feeling that they are doing things because they better do them because it's a duty, but then failing and feeling that way all the time. And here is the great gospel word that says, there is now no condemnation. You do not have to live like that. And as we said last week, the reason that we do not have to live like that is our relationship with God is completely changed by what Jesus has done. It's no longer that we have a set of laws that we're trying to keep in order that we can make things right with God, but rather Jesus has died for us and changed our relationship so that we relate to God as Father, as children. And that's one of the key themes of this eighth chapter. And we're going to be looking at again today about what does it mean to live as a child of God in a context of something else that we're all much aware of, which is in the context of suffering. How does it transform how we are going to live, and what does the Holy Spirit say to us about that? I want to start off just thinking for a little minute about this very important theme of being children of God, of being sons and daughters of God, because the concept that Paul uses to explain this is the concept of adoption. Now, adoption is something that we are familiar with. Some of us here will be adopted. Some of us here will have adopted. It's part of our, our culture and our life, and it's, a, it's, it's something that many, particularly Christians, have felt called to do over the years. But the background to this is not in modern concepts of adoption so much. It's in ancient concepts of adoption. And Roman concepts of adoption differed a little bit from ours in that people quite often adopted adults. In fact, perhaps the most famous Roman of them all did this, and that is Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was famous not just for conquering France or Gaul. Lots of people have done that, haven't they? Sorry, that's a bit unfair in the French. But um, not just famous for that, but he also famous for having no children. And therefore, Julius Caesar adopted a 19-year-old, his great-grand-nephew, a guy called Gaius Octavian. He adopted him when he was 19. And what that meant was that Gaius Octavian's name was changed when he became adopted at 19. And he became Gaius Julius Caesar. And not only did he get um, Caesar's name, he got Caesar's inheritance, which meant when Julius Caesar was assassinated, Gaius Julius Caesar um, became incredibly rich. Now, Gaius Julius Caesar, of course, we more often know as Octavian, and he later went on to inherit Julius Caesar's place in the Roman state and become the first of the Roman emperors under the name Augustus. And the Emperor Augustus always boasted in his adoption as the son of the victorious general, the mighty Julius Caesar, who'd been assassinated. And in fact, it was more than that because the Roman Senate declared that Julius Caesar had been one of the gods. And what that meant was, once the Julius Caesar was declared a god, Augustus, or Octavian, could put on all his coins that he was the son of a God. Here we are in the book of Romans where Paul says very clearly 
that we have been adopted, if we are Christians, by God himself. We have been chosen and adopted to be sons and daughters of God. And that means we have a new relationship with our Father. It's not just that He's a big, powerful God who made us. He is now the one that the Spirit enables us to cry, Abba, Father, to. It means we have a new inheritance. And that's why Paul will say in this chapter, we are co-heirs with Jesus. Jesus has earned this tremendous reward, but because we have been adopted as daughters and sons of God, we too will receive a share of the reward that Jesus has earned from His obedience. And what Jesus has is ours. We are adopted, or we are, you might put it another way, as John's gospel will put it, we are born again because of what Jesus has done. And that really matters in many ways. You know, lots of people will say today, and even in church at times, you, you know, we're all God's children. And by that they mean every human being is a child of God. Now, here's the interesting thing. The Bible never uses that language. It says, because of creation, all of us are made in the image of God. Every human being is. Every human being is loved by God. Every human being has value for God. But it reserves this language of being children of God to those who are in Christ. The only point where it says differently, there's one point in Romans where Paul talks about all humanity being offspring of God, but he's actually quoting a pagan philosopher. The Bible's teaching is very clear that Christians have this distinct image, this distinct relationship that they've been given the Spirit, as Paul will say, the Spirit of Sonship. Now, before you think, ladies, that's a bit sexist, um, the Spirit of Sonship, I will just point out that another metaphor in Revelation says that all Christians are the brides of Christ. So, ladies, you are sons. Guys, you are brides. That's okay. The Bible is quite inclusive in its language here. Sonship means that as we live before God, we don't live as slaves with duties, and we don't live as, as servants who, who earn our keep. We live as children. And what are children if they're not entitled? And anyone that lives with children will know what that means. Yeah, we have this, but we have more than that. We have a future hope that is given in Jesus. But of course, there is also suffering. Because Paul says that we receive the glory that Jesus has been promised if we share in His suffering. And what that makes very clear, that's why we started with these flames, is that this suffering, none of us as Christians will be able to escape. Jesus Himself didn't escape it. In fact, the whole of the gospel message is about the fact that Jesus came in perfection and obedience and yet he suffered the cross before he went to be raised again. One of the themes in this chapter that you keep coming back to, and if you read it, you'll see it time and time again, is an expression called groaning. We're told in, in, in verse 22 that the whole of creation is groaning. In verse 23, we're told that we are groaning inwardly. And, and what does groaning conjure up in our minds if it's not a sense of, of suffering? When do you groan? You groan when you're frustrated. You groan when you're in pain. 
this sense of groaning within us. We groan because things are not the way that it should be. I, I love the expression that's used here of the, the, the creation is groaning because of its bondage to decay. Now, there's sometimes you read things in the Bible and you think, oh, that's a bit difficult. And then, then you realize it's actually very, very obvious. Bondage to decay. It's the idea that everything's falling apart. You know, abide with me says change and decay in all the world I see. You know, you leave the garden for 10 minutes and what's happening? The weeds are taken over. You turn on the telly for five minutes and what's happening? It all seems to be going wrong. Everything at times seems to be going towards decay and getting worse and worse and worse. Everything is winding down. This is part in science, is, is, I think it's called the second law of thermodynamics, which is everything winds down. I'm not a scientist, but it's also something we observe in nature. Here's the bad news, folks. Once you've passed 20, it all goes downhill. It all goes south, doesn't it? You're never going to have the bodies, the fitness that you had in your 20s. You're never going to have it again. I'm sorry, guys. You can do all the jogging you like in your midlife crisis in your 40s. Go for it. But actually, you're never going to get back to where you were. You are, you, once you're past about 22, you're mentally past your peak. That's, that's the truth. That's the truth. You're physically going to find it gets harder. The number of things that you can't do will simply carry on growing. That's why we ask the teenagers to do the computers, isn't it? It's not because we can't, it's because we can't remember anymore. That's how it goes. There is, in all of life, at all times, this great sense of things winding down, a great sense of loss. We lose friends. The older you get, the more funerals you go to. This great sense of things winding down. It, it's very interesting. You see this very clearly. Is, is anyone a fan of the Pixar movies that, that Disney produced? And one of the things that I'm struck as you read these, as you watch these films with children, is that they're all about loss. Nemo, Finding Nemo, that lovely cartoon, starts off with, with his mum dies. And it all goes down from there. But mind you, that was in Bambi as well, wasn't it? And if you've ever watched Up, has everyone, anyone ever watched the Disney movie Up? I defy anyone to watch that, the introduction scene, without being in tears. Because it's all about a story of a, of a couple with all their hopes for their future, and they just get older and older and older and older and older until one of them dies and they're left not just with the loss of that, they're left with all the crushed dreams, with all the things that they'd wanted to do in their 20s that they can't do now. This is life. Go to Toy Story. You think you're safe there? No, Toy Story is all about the loss of childhood. And that, you know, even if you haven't lost anyone, you, you look at your children growing up and you realize they're not four anymore and you wish they were. It's never going to happen again. This is life. I, I, you know, I say to people that I've got babies, do you enjoy it while it lasts? Because it doesn't. That sense. And it's the same in the Bible's narrative. It starts off with the Garden of Eden, with everything being perfect, and then this sense of human decay and loss that we find in the rest of the Bible, so that work becomes toil, so that the ground gets tough and it brings up thorns and thistles, and things get harder and harder. And a sense, as you read the narrative, that one generation after another generation, we get more and more evil, and we get more and more brokenness, and we get more and more injustice. 
What is this saying? Creation is groaning under the sense of brokenness and the sense of loss. And we see that today, don't we, as we look at the frustration of creation, as we look at global ethics, as we look at climate change, we start to see that how human interaction with the planet, just like it says in Genesis, starts causing problems not just for human beings, but for the whole of creation itself, its suffering. But of course, there are different types of groaning. It can be a cry of despair, a cry of bodies lying on a battlefield, groaning out in pain, waiting to die, a cry of people saying, oh God, oh God. You know, it's often said that most people when they're suffering, even if they're not believers, they end up praying. But the depressing thing is that that is often not a sign of hope, it's rather a sign of defeat. There's nothing more I can do, and in my desperation, I cry out. But here's the thing that is different. If we are Christians and we are children of God, we do not cry out, oh God, oh God. We cry out, Abba, Father. It's the same suffering that we endure. It's the same sense of loss. It's the same broken world that we live in. There is no escaping that for the Christian. But because of our relationship with God, the groaning is transformed. It's no longer a groaning of desperation. It's a groaning of hope, Abba, Father. Jesus in Gethsemane, we saw this last week, at the most desperate point, the lowest point, the point that he was facing the cross, cried out, Abba, Father. And the passage will go on. It's sometimes quite difficult to see, and you're going to have to go and read this passage again because it's, it, 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 there's little thoughts that are, seem to be all over the place. But verse 26, it says that we don't know how to pray, but the Holy Spirit groans within us, groans within us, cries out. And, you know, the, the, the hopeful thing in, in, in all of this is, is, is simply another expression because it says that when creation is groaning, it's groaning in the pains of childbirth. Now, this is really significant. I don't know what the pains of childbirth are, by the way, just to be clear on that. I've experienced them, but secondhand, which is, guys, the best way to experience them. But I'm told it's pretty bad. And I'm fairly sure that's right. They are groans. They are painful. It must be awful to go through all of that. But as the labor pains come and the lady is rushed to hospital, it's not with the same thought that you might have had if you'd been shot or if you had appendicitis and you were groaning. But it's with excitement, isn't it? It's with hope. Because this pain is actually a sign that something wonderful is about to happen. And here is the promise that we have as Christians, not that we will escape the pain not that we will escape the suffering of this world, but that our hope will transform it. 
because we have been given an assurance in Christ about where everything is headed. So we do not see with the pessimist the world going down to nothing. But we do not need to see with the optimist a denial of that that pretends everything's going to get brighter. But rather, we see with a realism all of the pain transformed by the hope that we have been given. It says in verse 23 that the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, as if it were in tippy toes, in anticipation of what is about to happen in all the pain and in all the suffering. And Paul can say in verse 18 of this chapter, I consider that our present sufferings, and Paul knew what suffering was. This was a guy who'd been shipwrecked, flogged, excluded, rejected, thrown out of town a hundred times. He said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed with us. Such is the weight of what is promised to us and promised to this world that it transforms our suffering. Now, this is not just a bunch of theology. This is really, really practical. It, it, it changes how we pray. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Abba, Father, don't we? Our Father who art in heaven. So, we start with that very personal bit. But then the prayer looks at all the injustice, looks at all the suffering, all the brokenness of this world, and in a sense, crones out, Lord, make it stop but it doesn't do it in despair. Rather, it says, let your will be done. Let your kingdom come. Let that which is promised break into the present and transform how we look at all of this. Grasping now what God wants the world to be and calling for it to happen now. You see, for the Christian we always have this sure and certain hope that the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And one day, we will have new bodies and they won't go south. One day, we will have a new heaven and it won't feel distant. One day, we will have a new earth and it won't be broken. One day we will have new work, but we won't have toil. One day we will have relationships, but there won't be social injustice. One day we will see face to face and we will understand. And for that we yearn and we groan right now. And it's not just that. Because we're told this isn't just about saying to Christians, never mind, you'll go to heaven one day and you'll have all these great things, as much as that might be wonderful. But it's actually about more than that, because this resurrection hope that we have is also a hope for all of creation. Think about it this way. In the beginning, the Bible tells us that human beings sinned, and human beings' sin rippled along and destroyed creation. That's why suffering and pain and everything else we're told in the biblical narrative happened. And we're beginning to understand that as we begin to do, do planet science, aren't we? We're beginning to understand that the consequences of human sinfulness, of human greed, of human avarice, of human not caring, begins to have physical, geo-ecological consequences, aren't we? We're getting that. You know, 
things that the Bible told us years ago, the climate scientists are now saying, yeah. Here's the other thought. At the end of the book, it will be reversed. Because human beings remade in the image of Christ will be revealed as the children of God. And just as Adam in his brokenness and his sinfulness wrecked the world, so as we are raised and as God's power is released in us, the world itself can be healed. This isn't just good theology, it's good science. And you see, that transforms how we live now with that hope. Tim Keller uses an illustration which I I found quite helpful. He said, imagine this. Two men get a job. And the job is a really bad one. It's boring. It's putting, I don't know, caps on toothpaste tubes, something like that. And sorry if anyone's got that job, if it's your calling. But it's a really boring job, and and not only is it a really boring job, it's an 18-hour day shift. And not only is it an 18-hour day shift, it's a seven-day week. It's a bad job, and they both have to go to work, and they're both going the same way. But here's the difference. One has been told, you work for a year, and you'll get paid minimum wage. So he goes off to his job. The other one's been told, if you work for a year, you'll get a 15 million pound bonus. Now, they both still have to go to the same rubbish job and put the the, the tops on the toothpaste for 18 hours a day, (laughs) but one's whistling and the other is groaning. What is that about? It's about this, that you're able to do and deal with the present because of that future hope. It transforms the way that you live right now. I am convinced, says Paul, that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that lies in store for us. The Holy Spirit comes and tells us that there is no condemnation, that we're children of God. The Holy Spirit reminds us that this world is groaning and we should pray for its renewal. The Holy Spirit tells us that we are to become like Jesus and this glory. And here's the other thing with all of this. What is the glory that you yearn for? Because most people in this world are yearning for something that's going to give their life significance. And if it's the job, if it's the family, if it's having a nice church, if it's having a good home, then here's the problem. You will always find that it is slipping through your fingers. If the center of your life is your family, then you're always going to be hanging on to it for dear life and resenting every time that they get older or or you lose somebody or all of this happens. You will be groaning the whole time. But if your hope is set on what the Lord has given you, then your enjoyment of these things is transformed too. Because you are not in fear of losing everything, and that motivates you and changes you. I'm going to leave you just with one last thought about how this changes the world in practical ways. On the 3rd of March, 1968, Martin Luther King was rallying workers against racial injustice. And he said this, and he's referring here to the story in the book of Exodus of Moses 
after the people have been delivered from Egypt and they've gone through the wilderness, they get to the edge of the promised land. And Moses goes up Mount Nemo, uh, Nebo rather, and looks down. He, he will not enter the promised land, but he will see the glory that lies in store. And Martin Luther King says this, well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anyone, I would like to live a long life. Long levity has its place. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And He's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land, and I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And Martin Luther King wasn't taking that as a, oh, let's think about heaven and not do anything on the earth. Quite the contrary, he was using that to encourage the people to groan and to protest and to change the world, and his movement certainly did. But he did it because he had a vision that God would heal the world. He had a vision of what God had promised and what was in store. Martin Luther King said those words on the 3rd of March, 1968, and on the 4th of March, 1968, he was shot dead. He went to glory. Read chapter 8 and read it again. It really can transform you, the Word of God. For I am convinced that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, the children of God. Amen.